Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. Remember how insects used to smash against your car windshield? Do you ever wonder why that never happens anymore? The reason is not that insects have gotten better at avoiding highways. It's because they've disappeared. Several years ago, scientists began reporting dramatic declines domestically and internationally in honeybees, monarch butterflies, moths, beetles, and lightning bugs. In the U.S., 900 million monarch butterflies have died over the last 20 years, 90% of the total, probably thanks to human activities. In the same period, we've seen the rusty-patched bumblebee population drop by 87%. These historic declines, what some scientists call the windshield phenomenon or an overlooked ecological apocalypse, could alter our planet in unknowable ways. Today we speak with a figure on the front line of the fraught relationship between human beings and insects. Dr. Gail Ridge is an expert on bedbugs and a scientist at Connecticut's Agricultural Experiment Station. Her primary research is on bedbugs, but her expertise extends to insect morphology, behavior, and ecology. Dr. Ridge is an EPA FIRA Scientific Advisory Panel member, curator of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station Insect Collection, and overseer of the Experiment Station's Insect Inquiry Office, which fields thousands of queries each year. She has discovered and cataloged many new species of insects and serves as chair of the Connecticut Coalition Against Bedbugs. The Insect Inquiry Office that Dr. Ridge leads serves to diagnose and assist citizens of Connecticut with insect problems. The office, founded in 1901, is the state's only government office that will identify, for free, the winged, segmented, alive, squashed, winged, fuzzy bugs perplexing the state's humans. Civilians, farmers, and big companies alike, including Yale, all turn to the office and to its sage, Dr. Ridge, for insect advice. Dr. Ridge, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Hello. So most people in our society find insects scary or revolting in some ways, including many of the people who come to you. How did you um, come to see insects differently? And in particular, could you tell us some about your childhood and background and what drew you to these bugs and how you came to be the state's uh, wise woman on, on insects? I guess it was a life of evolution. I was raised in an isolated farm in Devon in West England by a couple of English graduates who had no idea how to farm. So um, I uh, grew up in um, a very beautiful part of the world um, and very wild part of the world. And there was really nothing to do except play the piano. And my father had bought a piano by accident. Can you believe this? And so that was my uh, intellectual outlet. And I uh, migrated into a career as a concert pianist. And then... Um, in the early 90s, um, I decided uh, that there was a moment uh, where I need to change my career because I found myself as a uh, young mother with three children. And as a concert pianist, you can't do the kind of career that I was doing raising three kids. They would come home. I would go out. So I... um, thought of moving into a career as a hydrologist. Um, But then there was a notice um, at the local community college uh, that the experiment station was looking for summer assistance. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go over to the station, get a little bit of the science rubbed off on me, and, uh, you know, it'd be good for the uh, resume. And I was assigned to the insect information office at the experiment station. And discovered this marvelous world of little animals with six legs or more, depending on what character you're running into. And um, every single day I go to work, I never have a repeat event. These little animals are remarkable. And I just got hooked. And so uh, in 88, I got my master's. And then uh, my doctorate in uh, 2000, uh, sorry, 98. And then my master's in 2000, uh, my PhD in 2008 from the University of Connecticut as an insect morphologist. Yeah, and we should be clear for listeners that you're yielding up to, you know, 20 or 
25 inquiries from Connecticut citizens a day. Or According to um, one article in one year, you had over 8,500 inquiries about bugs of all sorts and types. Yes. Um, 25 in the summer months is low. Uh, last year, because of the gypsy moth outbreak, um, I was nearly 14 to 15,000 inquiries in the office because of people's concerns. So it's very variable depending on what people are encountering. And what's so unique about your position, too, is that you're both passionately interested intellectually in these beings. You're both a scientist and you're coordinating what has traditionally been a very fraught relationship between the public and... There is a lot of tension. There is a lot of tension. Um, the, I'm, I manage the Insect Inquiry Office and then uh, Dr. Lee manages the uh, Plant Pathology Information Office. And the atmosphere in the two offices are entirely different. Oh, how so? What is the atmosphere like in your office? What is, what is, I know you've said that there's not, there's not a typical day in the life because you see a whole gamut of stories and mysteries that need solving and explanation. But could you give, um, give us a taste of sort of what some of the people coming in your door or calling you or writing to you have inquiries about? Um, people from all spectrums of life, both professionals and, and private citizens, come come to this office, um, and uh, we have glass walls, and it's a beautiful facility, very welcoming. And um, usually, when somebody walks in, I know exactly what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> you just see with the body language, you know, and you can cut the air with a knife. And my job is to bring peace of mind and education. So that when the person turns around and leaves, they are empowered and they understand what is going on. It's bringing understanding to people about these tiny little Lilliputian creatures, um, which you mostly ignore in life. What do you find some of the biggest misconceptions um, around these creatures are? Um, Folklore and urban myth is rife around insects um, because of lack of understanding. Um, one, one example is with bed bugs. Um, uh, the notion that uh, they feed in a straight line, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, is folklore. Yeah. Um, they are delicate, fussy little feeders, extremely timid, and they are capillary feeders. And so we do not have a straight capillary vein in our bodies. So if a bed bug is allowed to sort of trot around your skin and help itself to breakfast (laughs) or lunch or dinner, whatever, um, it's never in a straight line. The only time there would be a likelihood of a straight line situation would be if they were on a cuff and the cuff is straight and they would sort of sit on the fabric and then feed off. That's the only chance you would ever have a straight line feeding. So that's folklore. And, and uh, you know, bed bugs are very, very tightly woven into human society worldwide. The, the, its name is, um, is unique to every language in the world. Every language has a unique name for bed bugs. That's how intimate they are. Even our social behavior, such as spring cleaning, was the result of us trying to get ahead of bed bugs. So... Before the establishment of central heating, which really gave bed bugs a boost, they could be fully active all year, um, temperatures uh, would drop uh, in the fall into the winter, and people in the old days would then close off a number of rooms and not have them heated, and then they would go into the parlor, for example, and, and camp out for the winter. So buildings got cold, and so when, when you get into the temperatures of the 40s, bed bugs get cold too. What's comfortable for a bed bug is comfortable for us. They're completely married to our biology. And so they'll shut down and get quiet and quiescent. And so in the spring, people learned that we'll do spring cleaning. We'll clear everything out of the building, clean it out on the front lawn and to get after those snoozing bed bugs because bed bugs get cold and stiff if, they, if you get into the 40s. And so they can't run away on you and do anything. You can just brush them off and dispatch them as you need. And so then people would reduce the populations of bedbugs in their, in their homes. And then in the summer, it would take longer for those populations to catch up. So it gives us a chance of not being pestered by them. Mm. They don't actually pose a threat to humans. Nope. Right. It's a psychological 
um, issue with bedbugs. They are medically harmless. They're very delicate insects, um, they're, uh, but they are hard to catch because of the myriad of behaviors. Because they are a prey insect, they're like the equivalent of a rabbit. Um, they have all the behaviors of a prey animal, and shyness and timidity and, and withdrawal are huge. And the, the, we, we as human beings have created the perfect habitat for them. Um, if you, in, in prehistoric times, people would select sheltered areas such as cliff dwellings. As you can see out in New Mexico, that's classic places where prehistoric people would live, or caves or, or any kind of sheltered area. And, and these, these rocky areas generally are uh, rife with cracks. And there are other animals living along with us, and, and this little insect had evolved to be flat to live inside a crack for survival. So it's protected at least on three sides. And so as people moved out of those natural protective harborages and started to construct buildings with local materials, if you think of the Middle East and the Fertile Crescent and early Western civilization, guess what we did? We organized a cave. We created a building. We are cave-living animals, and we have to think in those terms. And I think of this as an evolution biologist. And so we created a cave. And so you go looking across New England, I see a house as a cave, whereas everybody else sees a house as a house. Okay, but it's actually a man-made cave full of cracks and crevices. So we created a perfect habitat, and we provide the nutrition. Hmm. And what are these are our cave dwelling friends, <laughs> these bed bugs, like individually? And that you say that most of us just know of bed bugs as a phenomenon to fear and to check, you know, check an apartment for vigorously and to tear the sheets off the bed when you get to a hotel room to look for them first. But what are they actually like? You've written about how they will clean their beaks, somewhat like we clean our faces, or oh, they carry their fussy. young on mm. their on their chest. Um, could you could you tell us about? Well, you know, a good, bed healthy bedbug, a robust, happy bedbug is very clean. They clean themselves. They wash themselves. They make sure their beaks are clean because it assists in their feeding. Um, so they're constantly washing and bathing or, sno or snoozing and sitting around. Um, they're chatty Cathy's. They have a lot of um, pheromones that they chitter-chat. And so if somebody spots trouble in fractions of a second, the rest of the colony will know. They aggregate. They herd. Because, again, they're a prey animal. So if you're thinking of uh, zebra in, in the herds in, in Africa, bedbugs are the same, but it's all in miniature. And, you know, in, in, in my job in many ways is as a small game hunter. And I need to understand how they tick so then we can manage them better and more efficiently um, into the future. Does that – do you ever experience a tension in yourself around – your care and attention and curiosity about these creatures and the imperative of the people who you're engaging with in the public who want to just eradicate them? Yes, there's a general attitude, kill first, ask questions later. Um, and so for me, I like to look and then ask questions because it's sometimes not as necessary. You know, with bed bugs themselves are actually a, an important food source within buildings, historically. Um, they aggregate in what's called refuges. Um, and they actually are very clean little animals, as I said before. Then they'll, they'll defecate in and around those refuges. Um, only insects that are stressed will defecate anywhere else. Because they're defecation or fecal material actually is very rich in chemistry and it becomes a beacon in the night, if you want to put it in those terms, for when they go out and forage, they can smell their way back to the refuge. Okay, so um, in, in, in answering your question about tension, for me internally, I have no problems with the little animals because um, I understand them. You know, I can I, I know how they tick. But my problem is working f with people because they 
the anxiety levels are so intense sometimes, I can't get through to people. I have to repeat continuously a, a statement until that person learns. What happens is on, on bed bug discovery for most people is their cortisol level just pours into their bloodstream and they go into a sort of primitive mind state and they're incapable of learning. It's fight or flight. Mm. And so they're looking at you and you're talking to them, but they're not actively hearing you. And so it, 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 your, my role has to change depending on the person. I have to be very fluid. I, I either become maternal. Now, dear, don't worry. We're going to be fine. You know, this is what we're going to do. Or sometimes I have to rough a person up depending on how they, you know, knock it off. You know, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to show you how to do it. So um, it's actually not the insects, the difficulties. Uh, it's people. Too often true. Why do you think it is that the insects have that effect on us to make us feel so stressed and nervous in general? It's all about control. It's all about, um, in this case, um, bed bugs. Because they are timid, um, they have this ability to learn the behaviors of their host. They really are in this paradox of existence where they are utterly dependent on the most dangerous predator on the planet. You know, we happily kill ourselves off. You know, who invented the atomic bomb? Did a lion in the savannah do it? Or a polar bear in Greenland? No, we did it. We're highly intelligent. But we also have these hang-ups because of that. The, the human brain is, is very unstable in certain aspects. And anxiety is part of this whole stew. What you said um, reminded me of an analogy that the historian Yuval Noah Harari makes around humans as sheep with nuclear weapons because we're, I think as he puts it, psychological fossils that we as you had been talking about before, we, we spent most of our history in dramatically different conditions than we have today, and yet we're still in these bodies yeah, with these fears. Yeah. And we hadn't been at the position of the mighty lion or the elephant at the top that we had been pretty much in the middle of the food chain, prey, predators and prey. Yeah. So we retain we, that anxiety. Yes, we, we have retained that. We haven't evolved from that. We've, we are actually... Uh, a mix of a total disaster as well as a, a, a miracle. You know, we we have um, a specialized uh, vocal system that allows us to enunciate. We have the whites of our eyes so we can communicate without saying a word. Um, we're upright. Our front legs have adapted to this extremely sophisticated tool. And um, and we can we have stamina. We we can run for great distances at a steady pace. And we're highly intelligent. And we communicate. And we're we're um, a communal species. So um, with that, um, we're very potent. And um, that's the problem for the bed bug. <laughs> and so. They learn our behavior, and um, part of that is to approach us because we are so dangerous to them at a time when we're not paying attention and we're not – because we're very touchy-feely. You know, when I um, advise people to hunt for uh, attached ticks, don't look for them. Touch your skin. We're very, very uh, touch sensitive, particularly in our hands. We're very hardwired. So a bed bug who's trotting around in your skin, you can pick up the sensation of a bed bug moving. You'll bump into a hair. Oh, somebody's there. Okay, so they don't want to tangle with you because they know you're going to kill it. So with that, they generally approach you when you're asleep, daylight or night. They adapt to that. So if you're a night watchman and you sleep during the day, the colony will feed on you during the day. Okay, they and so um, that that fear of us 
because they know darn well that we will kill them makes for us a sense of vulnerability and we're not in control because somebody's coming at us when we're not awake. Mm. And that, that sense of vulnerability to bugs even extends beyond the physical bed bugs to imaginary bugs in, in some cases. And um, you've become um, a go-to scientist for um, a large group of the population from all over the world. People write to you about um, feeling like they have bugs on their body or the bugs are eating them or scratching them and they have these sensations on their skin even though there seem to be no bugs there. Um, and the medical community sometimes refers to this as a delusional parasitosis um, and these are people who've often you know, gone to the medical community and said they, they feel like they have these bugs on them and the doctors tell them, no, you don't. And they say, okay, well, I'm going to an insect scientist. And then they end up writing to you. And I'm curious, how, do you, how often do you fare these um, inquiries at your office and, and how do you approach them? You've become, I should say, that you're, you're a doctor but, and you wrote a 998-page, I believe, if I'm correct, thesis um, when you got your PhD. <laughs> yes. But it wasn't on um, – you know, medical delusions. It was on um, oh, a very detailed um, description of, how in, of insects that are the same on the outside. If you look at them, I believe, they have to be dissected in order to tell the difference. Yeah. But then here you are, in some ways, filling a void that the medical doctors haven't been able or, or don't have the time or the, um, the really just the answers to this mystery to solve. And so anyway, so just as a little more context yeah, to, the, to how you the, approach these cases. The, the thesis was on the uh, interior skeletal structures and the okay. attachment points of muscles within, bed, within insects. And I did it in the um, order het, uh, Heteroptera. Um, you look at an insect externally, it's pretty smooth. Mm -hmm. But my God, it's a forest of characters inside and you study that carefully enough, uh, you can actually get down to subspecies level for identification. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So uh, that's – but, the, you know, this is, the, this is the life of entomology. So you're looking at the, uh, you know, the macro as well as the micro, and they both are simultaneously uh, married together. You know, one of the first professors who in my transition from music as a concert pianist over to science said to me, which was very telling, was, you know – Look at the tree, but also look at the forest at the same time. And that's what I do when people come in. I'm, I'm looking at a person's demeanor and, and stories and narratives at many, many different levels. Mm -hmm. And um, to be patient and to have empathy is huge because these folks are struggling. They've been underserved by the medical profession. They have something. For them, it's absolutely real. And they're just trying to find an answer for something they don't understand, and they default to a human problem of an anxiety towards insects. They get a creepy, crawly sensation on their skin, and they immediately go from zero to 60 in the direction of arthropod activity. And there's certainly roads and scallywags on the internet who will take full advantage of that and fuel those anxieties. And, and people who have been in this state without uh, appropriate care will fall into um, confirmation bias. So they will select information to support their beliefs if they spend enough time and investment into it. And then additionally, the sunk cost fallacy, where again, they've invested so much time, they become emotionally attached to that concept. And so they will garner approval. They're looking for approval because one of the one of the things that people don't appreciate is the sensation of regret. That hurts because this person has spent years sometimes, I get cases of years, invested in this thought. They've isolated. They've lost a lot of their lives and they can't face the notion that they've, they're wrong. But they're not wrong. They're f afraid of that regret. Wow. It, there's something so poignant, too, about um, the fact that in their case, it's a 
delusion that's specific to them and that has organized their life in these ways that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then, but meanwhile, at the same time, you're privy to the collective delusions that we have about bugs that mm-hmm. because we share them and they're normalized, we don't see as pathological. Yeah, we're in we're inside a society with inside ourselves, but we're also looking out. And that gets very complicated. And my job is, as I've said earlier, is to find peace. Um, I, you know, I often get an avalanche of samples because the person's wanting to prove to me, to have me validate them. Um, And I can get people very angry at me because I'm not validating. And um, I have to, you know, work them off the cliff. And I consider delusions of parasitosis, in some cases, life and death. Mm-hmm. I've lost people. People have died. You know, so I take every, every set of feet that walk through that door very seriously. And we should say, too, that this isn't um, a small number of people, too. That it's, no. it's, a, it's a lot. You've said that mm-hmm. um, prior to this interview to Lindsay and me that you thought perhaps you know, 5% of the population might suffer from these types of delusions and that the it's very underreported in the medical community because often these people have gone to their medical doctor already and they haven't gotten a solution there. So they're, and they're really suffering, as you've said, so they're desperate and they go to you. Um, and it's uh, it's very moving to, to hear about and to read about because you take um, such a com- compassionate and thoughtful approach to them and sort of give them in a way what is especially the modern medical community sometimes can't by by listening and sort of hearing them almost. What I give them is time. The medical community is so tied up and it's not the doctors. I know know the doctors. There are many good doctors. But, you know, it's like medicine is an art form. You have good artists and you have why are you here artists, you know. There are good doctors and there are bad doctors. There's a spectrum. Um, and so many good doctors are tied up by corporations that are dictating and getting between patients and doctors. And you've got 20 minutes to get an idea of what is going on with this person out the door. You got to, you know, they're, they're hamstrung by money. And, and many doctors don't like that, but they fall into that. And in my unique position is... Um, my my space is is to welcome people and to be a, a safe place for people to come to get help and i will help if i can and there are times when uh the, i have to just let go i can't help them and i have to recognize when i can't do that um but you know in my experience with connecticut you know connecticut is a remarkable state in its placement between two major world cities, Boston and New York. It's a a state that has both fully-fledged urban life as well as rural life. You have the wealthy of the Fairfield, the super-rich, the billionaires in Fairfield, and then the poor out in, you know, the tenement buildings in Bridgeport. This, 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 the fabric of this state is a microcosm of the United States. There, it's multicultural. There are 148 languages spoken in Connecticut. Okay, and we have defined seasons. We have four seasons. So, you know, it's small. So I can get around. You know, I'm not navigating um, a place like Texas for hours from get to go from town to town. So that's, you know, with 22 years of working with delusions of parasitosis, I found that this state has revealed a lot about the United States. Hmm. I'm curious, are there particular strategies that you initially tried with some of these people um, that you realized ended up leading them further into the um, predicament? Or I'm trying to imagine, like, because I imagine that, I mean, to see someone like you who's 
not only not cowed by the beings that they feel hounded and haunted by, but who has this extraordinary capacity to be an objective scientist with regard to them and a feeling fellow being Mm. with them. And I imagine that from their perspective is just fascinating and... Um, and so I wonder when you're, when you're kind of thinking through things with them and giving them the time, do they, does it ever help them, do you find, to come face to face with some of the bugs in your terrarium in your office and kind of kayak into the wave, so to speak, and just, (laughs) or would that be bad news? Um... You know, they are so focused in their own world, they don't even notice them when they walk into the laboratory. Really? So they don't notice the physical bugs that are there? Their minds are so focused on the issue that they don't see the world around them. So in, in, in my position, in my seat, is I have a library of knowledge of all medically significant arthropods what mites could be a problem to people, what insects, you know, uh, all kinds of critters. You know, I have to be fluent in medically significant arthropods because people come to me with these completely well-thought-out biologies and uh, irrespective of uh, intellectual level from, you know, professors to the couple who abandon their home and are living in a car with barely two pennies between them. Um, And so I have to maintain a focus as a scientist and I'm, I'm listening to what they're saying because, yes, there could be a chance that they have a problem from an arthropod and I need to see if, um, if that's the case. But then also to be able to listen to for um, statements that are a red flag. One of them is, I'm not mad. In their minds, I'm not mad. No, everybody's telling me I'm mad. You know, I've lost it. Yes, you've lost it because you're trying to find something you can't understand and you're not getting the answers you want. And there are genuine cases. There are, you know, genuine um, psychologically sick people and they're not on their meds. But many people, finally, when they open up with me, um, are usually chemistry planted drugs that have been given to them by doctors. And on a case last week, um, we were working, and it came apparent that the doctors had not been checking with other doctors about what medicines they were taking. And so they were getting allergic dermatological um, side effects from these drugs. Wow. Um, so often with delusions of parasitosis, there are underlying medical conditions that have not been picked up by the medical profession. And because the medical profession is under pressure um, by these corporations, um, there's this revolving door effect. And so they become naive and listen to these narratives by these folks and not lose their objectivity. And they get, because they have no time to think and ask questions and get to know where this person's coming from. And so um, case after case after case, do I get clients come to me who said they've been treated by the doctor for scabies the prescribed medicine for an arthropod, a mite, that doesn't exist, which I find extremely worrying. Yeah, under understandably so. Um, we'll, we're going to play here some clips from yes. some of the people that you've kindly shared with us. And I'm calling with a question about uh, an affliction... Uh, which a, a family of ours, a family actually lived in Uncasville, um, um, and the whole family has been suffering from incredibly itchy skin with 
mysterious rashes coming and going in little black specks upon their skin. Um, and so um, um, we've tried various medical type things to deal with this and treated them for scabies and etc. Um, but it, the thought of um, could it be a bird mite infestation came to mind as we had a family with a similar story previously. They've been wrestling around with this, the family, since July or so. Um, and I was just looking for information as to how we would um, pursue investigating that or if you had any other thoughts. So It's a bug that I have, and it turned into, it turned into that. I don't know if it's a sign that God's given me to know what's going on, really. And uh, me before, when you told me that, me, I didn't believe you. That couldn't be possible. And it is. I found one. It was right in, stuck to my sink. Uh, I think because of the bleach uh, smell in the house, I'm trying to get rid of those bugs. And it, uh, it, got, it got stuck on the side of my sink, so I picked it up and I put it in a little jar here. And, I don't, and then I, there's like bugs in my bathtub, like when I shake my clothes there, like, like they swim, it's like swimming, little kinds of bugs, they swim and they look like something weird, like a mosquito or with more little, more legs. I've never seen that. I've I seen one before, it had a lot of little legs on it. And then I put it in a container and it, uh, in the water, it lived for two two or three days, and now I, I found some in the tub. I found two of them. One at first, I only saw one, and now I, I saw another one. I'm going to show Peter. is coming in there for my husband, and now it's swimming in the water. I put it in a container. It's got a little wing out, and it's swimming in the water. It looks like a, I don't know. I've, I've never seen this in my life. It's like something that the one that the dead and stuff in my house, they found, they, they found out about, and they're doing this so like that. Nobody cannot identify it. It's kind of bug. It's crazy. I, I, I'm not crazy. I know what I'm talking about. I'm going through hell. I'm going through this. This is awful. It goes in your hair. Thank you, because you are truly a brilliant doctor, a genius. And they found nodules on my thyroid. And I just wanted you to be first to know, and because of you, it, it was discovered. Thank you. I so much appreciate what you did. Okay, bye. You've spoken about the significance of the skin as a membrane between the environment and the individual. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you think there's any. Well, we, we live in a skin-perfect society, we have this media that continually has this drumbeat of, you know, the gorgeous-looking skins. The skin is an organ. It's our, our connection to the world outside. And like anything else, it can get broken. It can break down. And it's often talking to us, and we lack the attention to pay attention to it. Um, it's rich in um, nerves. And on many occasions, um, I've sent uh, clients to uh, a doctor, Anne-Louise Oaklander, out of Harvard. She's a neurological scientist. And um, there are situations when people are coming to me with pricky sensations, and actually they're suffering from a neurological problem. Uh, small fiber polyneuropathy is an event when peripheral skin nerves under the surface of skin die. And then the brain is creating a phantom limb effect and it's sending you know, messages to that area, trying to verify it's still there and, and it creates a pricky sensation or an itch, an irritation. Mm -hmm. And um, we're just beginning to sort of break open this, this world and uh, what she's found is that people who have had shingles have had issues with dermatitis ensuing in ensuing periods following that. Hmm. So, you know, um, chicken park shingles, these, these viruses can play games with your skin. And she's just looking into that now. Yeah, the, the skin is particularly interesting to think about, too, in that I think we're used to, as animals, thinking of our own bodies as us and everything that's not in our bodies as 
not us or them, yes. and this being a concrete, solid barrier, and then being uh, feeling very disturbed by the idea that anything like a bug could bite in or permeate the barrier. But of course, the entire barrier is permeable, really. Yes. Exactly. It goes both ways. You know, it's, it's a mechanism to keep us cool. It gives us an awareness of our environment with touch and heat. It keeps us alive and it keeps us in, in one piece. You are probably one of, if not the only, entomologist, at least that I know of, who was first a concert pianist. And you, you've spoken about how uh, science and your work is, is really an art um, it, it, as, well as, a, as well as a science. And I'm curious, could, could you tell us how um, your training in piano and your work as a musician has informed how you approach your work um, now on bugs. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, because I think that um, any training like that surely shapes and gives you such an unusual perspective or starting off point yeah. that perhaps someone that spent their entire life studying bugs or entire life in a particular field um, just has, has a very different perspective on. Music, and this is cliche for musicians, but for general population is not sort of on the radar. Music is the sound of emotions. You can drive soldiers off cliffs to the beat of martial music. You can inspire people with music. You can terrify people with music. You can, you know, woo people with music. Music is very much part of who we are. And and the animals... We are animals. We're part of the animal kingdom. They also respond. You know, in in rural England, I was I grew up with a lot of dairy farms, and they used to play flute music to the cows, and the cows would produce more milk. So the animals respond, and and so as a as a musician, you know, I'm dealing with the scope of a composition, as well as the detail. At the same time, you know, getting in a fraction of a second, I have to get a beautiful tone that's within the frame and flow and thought of a piece. And um, I'm seancing with the composer. And you, when you get to a high level, I, you, I almost get to know how the composer's hand at the keyboard actually worked because the way the notes are put. Pl- placed and written so you get right you know it's 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 ethereal that goes into the sciences uh science we 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 have this habit of um putting everything in these little boxes but it isn't you know that's just again a control mechanism science is an art and and when you're working in science, you're looking at the macro as well as the micro simultaneously. It's just like playing a piece on the piano. There's no difference. And you've spoken before, too, about how over time, as, as both science and art age, there are similarities as well. And how mm-hmm. if, for instance, thinking about you know, individual bugs having personalities of their own, which is something that you've uh, observed in mm-hmm. the bed bugs that you study, um, which is an idea that seems very radical now, but that other people are discovering with termites and, and other bugs as well, um, and perhaps won't be seen that way going forward. And then likewise, uh, you've spoken about how certain musical pieces were seen mm-hmm. as really radical and that now are accepted as masterpieces yeah. of our of you know, our um, I've said heritage. I've said to... Piers, you know, I, I've watched bedbugs. I, you know, I've studied individuals. Um, and it's my, my comments, uh, you know, sort of tap, tap, you know, no, dismissed. You know, you're anthropomorphizing it. Uh, we're communicating, all right? And, and part of communication sometimes has to use anthropogenic statement to get the message across. Um, and if it can be fully understood, what I'm saying and is received by the receiver in the same context, then I know I'm successful. And, and in, in, in music, for example, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring caused a riot when it was first, first performed in, in Paris. People went absolutely, you know, 
their tactic conductor, I think, poor thing. But um, that was in, in, I think, 1912, 1913. I can't quite remember those dates, but, you know, sanitized music up to that point. And then Stravinsky hit people with a full body punch with that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, in in you know later years, you you see Stri- uh, you see Disney use that music in Fantasia to great effect, and it takes decades for an initial concept such as this piece by Stravinsky to get accepted. And so, when you have, in the, it's the same in science, you 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 make a statement and you get the tut tut. But you're hoping that what you've said has sown a seed and say, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, people will start to say, oh, now I can sew this together. I'm getting to put this web of ideas together and then we get the picture. It's interesting, too, because music, of course, has been called the universal language because unlike um, natural languages, Mm. they don't need to be a piece produced in one society does not need to be translated according to some um, adjudicating code into another. Um, It's just effortlessly works across Mm. human populations and you're saying also, as we've seen, across species populations. Mm. So, um, and it makes me wonder too what, when you talk about communicating with um, your research subjects and realizing that they're perceiving you and changing their responses based on your presence. Does that um, does that sort of give you a window into a form of communication that informs how you think about your relationships with other humans? And I wonder what what if if it's possible to kind of characterize and maybe take us to a situation where you're studying the bed bug and you're realizing that the bed bug is responding to you in a particular way. Studying you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, bed bugs study you. Yes, your subject studies you. They're very aware of you. You've said even that they're, they're particularly aware of you um, in particular, not just you in the in the general <laughs> sense, to the point where bed bugs, of course, as as um, listeners know, but probably might not have thought through, feed on human blood and therefore need to be fed human blood. They don't do as well, you've said, on um, you know other types of blood. So in a, in a very controlled way, you're not letting the bed bugs out. You'll even let the bed bugs, since they're familiar with you and comfortable with you, feed on your skin or your blood. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, I um, because what I want to do is reduce their anxiety towards me. We're as much anxious to them as they are to us. Um, So um, they are this particular species. It's the common bed bug, Cymex lectularius, um, has adapted to feeding on us. And so with these colonies that I work with, allowing them to feed on me, not only are they getting the appropriate nutrition, they also get to know that I'm um, a friend. I'm a source of food. Um, I'm, I can be <laughs> somewhat trusted. And so um, my scent, my presence, it becomes an issue where they ignore it. And so they get about and do their bed bug business. You know, and they do their buddy, you know, buggy little things, little activities that they get up to. But I also fully understand that their time frame, their their um, behavior time is very different from ours. You know, we have manufactured time, you know, with hours and minutes and seconds. That's a, a, a manufacture of our part. They are their timing is different. So I see a lot of research where insects, these insects are forced to um, do something within 72 hours and then 140 hours. You know, that's, not, that's us imposing our time onto them. When I'm working with bad dogs, I can be literally, literally sitting and watching them for months before they will reveal a behavior. So it's, you've got to be willing to, as I say, 
offer time. And even with the delusions of parasitosis, you've got to give time. And we're being robbed of that in time. You know, constant battery of Facebook messages, media messages, sound bites. There's no luxury of having time. And that's lost in this society. And, and we're paying a high price. I can see that being very zenny to be spending yes. a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and also, um, as you've said, very not just a luxury, but very necessary, too, to understand we these animals. Need, yeah. We need, you, everything needs time. Mm-hmm. And um, if you give it time, everything falls into place naturally. And so when I give these, you know, my insects time and, and my clients time, often things get resolved much faster. Mm. Well, Dr. Ridge, thank you so much for giving us the time this morning to speak with us and for, and for being uh, such a good friend to the humans and insects of Connecticut alike. Mm-hmm. Um, to close the interview, we like to ask our guests for books or films, though I think in your case we should also include music, um, that have influenced how they think about animals um, and shape their thoughts. Are there two or three that come to mind for you? Books or films? Or music? I guess one of the most beautiful pieces that everybody can embrace and love is Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, the Pastoral Symphony. He struggled to write that piece. He wrote versions of the melodies, over 200 versions of that melody. Um, um, And... He created a masterpiece, and, and I feel like that is very much an artist's message to life. The arts are uh, dynamic. They're constantly changing. They're evolving, devolving. They're always fluid. They're always mobile. And you should never look at things as concrete. Which is a profound metaphor for... Science, yes, as well. Science is a living entity, and it's populated by living people, and that should be respected. Dr. Galridge, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. much. It's been a joy. Thank you, too, to our great producer, Ryan McAvoy, and the Yale Broadcast Studio, and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find photos of Dr. Ridge and her research subjects. Thanks for listening.